Hello, I'm David Mosscrop. Welcome to Open to Debate, brought to you by Interact. June is Pride Month. For decades, the 2S LGBTQ plus community and their allies have been advocating and organizing for rights recognition. This month is both a celebration of that community and a remembrance of the struggle for justice and equality, a struggle that is ongoing. Even as we celebrate Pride, the Canadian government is fighting to uphold a discriminatory policy that requires men who have recently had sex with men to wait three months before they can donate blood. The state's intransigence reminds us that political sloganeering is one thing, but true and complete equality in practice is another. So we must ask, what is the state of 2S LGBTQ plus rights in Canada? My guests on this episode of Open to Debate are Chris Karras, a human rights advocate who is challenging the blood donation deferral policy that applies to men who have sex with men, and Gregory Coe, a human rights lawyer at Kastner Lamb LLP who represents Karras. Let's start, uh, Chris, with your complaint against Health Canada and Canadian Blood Services to the Human Rights Commission regarding the blood ban for uh, men who've recently had sex with men. Can you walk us through the complaint? starting back in 2015, 2016, and, and running up to where we are now? So before I filed a complaint with uh, the, uh, the Canadian Human Rights Commission, I attempted to donate my blood at a clinic in Brampton, a Canadian Blood Services uh, blood donation clinic. And of course, when I tried to do this, I was told I couldn't because... I am gay. And I had at the time uh, my blood results in hand, and this was uh, not enough. This wasn't sufficient to allow me to donate. And I couldn't understand why. Um, and I, I also, you know, recall having my rainbow bracelet on and, and taking this off because um, I. I think I, I felt a great deal of shame. And so I, I took this off and, and thought to myself, what am I doing? What am I doing? And, you know, following this, I, uh, I, I filed a complaint against Canadian Blood Services and Health Canada. Uh, this was then, um, um, uh, this then moved through the Canadian Human Rights Commission. It was investigated. There was an assessment report and, and an investigation report that was made. And then we moved to conciliation, which is a mandatory um, uh, settlement resolution process, uh, of which we were not successful. And then from there, uh, the commission uh, deferred the matter to the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal to have a full inquiry into this issue. Since it's been referred, the Attorney General of Canada, the Department of Justice for Health Canada, has filed an application for judicial review to block that inquiry. And so uh, just, I think it was uh, one or two weeks ago, uh, we were at the Federal Court of Canada uh, making our case that uh, we should be allowed, uh, we should be permitted 
to have a full inquiry into uh, the matter and that uh, it shouldn't simply be blocked because the government feels embarrassed and uncomfortable about what questions might be raised. And so um, that has since concluded uh, and a decision by the uh, the federal court judge has been reserved. So that uh, may come within the coming weeks or months and possibly longer than that. So uh, we will uh, wait for that and, and see what um, it contains. But beyond that, um, at, at the same time that all of this is happening, we have the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal who is proceeding with our complaint. And so uh, there has since been two decisions, two, um, I, I would say, important decisions made by the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal um, already against both Health Canada and Canadian Blood Services. And so, um, you know, it feels like there's a parallel um, um, or even a duplicate proceeding that is underway. And um, normally this doesn't occur. And, and we're also seeing a pattern here where the federal government is prepared more than ever to block human rights complaints. We're seeing this with the First Nations uh, uh, Caring Society case with Cindy Blackstock. Um, this, this is happening currently. Uh, there's now, I think, uh, 19 non-compliance orders uh, that the, the government is subject to. I'm, I'm, I'm deeply concerned, and I think that uh, we should all be concerned uh, because our government is doing this in our name. Uh, Greg, can you walk us through what the government's arguments are in this case and, and what the counterpoint is? Uh, it strikes me that this is, you know, drawing a bit of a parallel with what Chris was saying, a, a broader concern that the government is abdicating responsibility in areas. And it strikes me that they're doing so in this case, too. But what's, what's their formal argument anyway? Happy to help. Yes. Yeah. So the formal arguments the Attorney General brought on behalf of Health Canada is that they say that the Health Canada, their primary argument is that Health Canada is not involved in the elaboration of the gay blood ban. They say that it is a policy that Canadian Blood Services, as the frontline agency who collects blood, um, has uh, introduced, and that Health Canada's role in the policy is merely one of reviewing and approving according to what are called the blood regulations and extension of legislation. So Health Canada's argument essentially boils down to uh, we have no control over this policy. We're required by law solely to look at whether blood safety and human safety is engaged by the policy, but otherwise we're not involved. The argument that we raised in response was this, that the blood regulations were not a complete answer to whether Health Canada has human rights liability or, or human rights obligations in this case here. Our pitch is this, that it's quite clear, no one doubts that Health Canada has a regulatory mandate to protect human safety and blood safety. It's how Health Canada discharges or exercises that mandate that we're entitled to understand whether that discharge or exercise of the mandate is compliant with human rights legislation. What we do know is this, that the facts on the ground 
reflect a very different reality. Uh, Health Canada is actually appears to be based on the limited evidence that was uh, revealed at the commission level before it proceeded to the tribunal, which is entitled to actually uh, look into this matter more deeply. But we know already from the record that's developed is that Health Canada um, ultimately is the body that determines what what risk is 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 um, um, acceptable or not, what is safe and what is not safe, and it's ultimately Health Canada uh, in its regulatory capacity that has, despite uh, multiple iterations of this gay blood ban, um, uh, precluding gay men from donating blood unless they sit out a celibacy period, that's Health Canada that at all stages um, has these stringent requirements precluding CBS from going any further. We also know that Health Canada has imposed two-year moratoriums on any further changes every time CBS, Canadian Blood Services, attempts to change uh, and alleviate the restrictions on gay men. It's Health Canada that has put the brakes on any further changes. We also know that Health Canada funds the very research it requires CBS to produce to change uh, the uh, donor selection criteria, as it's called. And we also know that it's Health Canada that um, uh, sits down with CBS every time there's a new proposal to provide feedback on uh, further amendments or uh, further changes to these restrictions. So Health Canada on its face is telling us that they have a very limited role, but on the ground, um, we we're seeing already developing in the record that's building for the tribunal that they are actually quite involved at every, uh, every critical step, whether it's funding the research, reviewing the research, providing feedback to Canadian Blood Services, and ultimately approving the policy that Health Canada's hands very much are all over this policy. Uh, now, it seems to me that uh, th that there is a, a a charter case here, but there there is a charter challenge history with the band, right? Going back what now twenty years now, give or take. Mm -hmm. um, is, is there is there a, a possibility that this that goes back through up and finds its way back to the Supreme Court as a challenge, or is this now outside of that that? Uh, the Supreme Court's uh, reach? This is the sort of case that could eventually go to the Supreme Court. I think what's important to keep in mind is that the um, Canada, in order to challenge these sorts of policies, there typically are two routes you can take. You can take a charter challenge, which is a formal lawsuit, um, or you can, uh, you can bring this sort of claim through the human rights regime, which is a lot more accessible. Um, I, I want to remind folks that Chris is a private citizen here. He uh, he's not like a one-man law firm in, in, in himself, right? And so the whole point of human rights uh, commissions and human rights tribunals is to create an accessible regime that allows folks like Chris to see a policy that seems discriminatory on space um, and challenge it um, with the support of, uh, of, of an accessible process. And so the whole point of the human rights tribunal, the Canadian human rights tribunal, that's the federal tribunal that deals with human rights matters, at the federal level, is to provide an accessible format where you have um, a adjudicator who has plenary powers to order production of documents, to guide the process through what's called case management, um, to insist on you know, the timely delivery of documents, and it's also a free and accessible process, whereas a court process, which is what a charter challenge would require, is quite a costly process. It would be 
you, you really need a lawyer to navigate a charter challenge. Um, Chris, to his credit, is, uh, has navigated this challenge on his own, largely on his own, for the last five, six years. Um, and we certainly were retained to assist with the judicial review because it presents these complicated administrative law issues. Uh, but the whole point of the tribunal process is to provide a plenary uh, inquiry and review into the, the substance of the complaint uh, through a free and accessible fashion. And I think what's also different here in the human rights regime is it's really measuring Health Canada's liability or its, 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 its conduct according to human rights principles as opposed to purely a, char a charter basis. And um, there's a certain expertise at the Human Rights Tribunal in figuring out, is this sort of conduct, it could be a neutral rule. In this case here, it doesn't seem very neutral <laughs> when it's targeted towards all gay men, um, that, uh, or all men who have sex with men, uh, i.e. gay men and bisexual men, uh, that it seems it's very helpful having the tribunal with expertise um, leading through um, the technical and scientific information that's coming through uh, and making determinations. I want to get to the, the state of, of rights in Canada in a few minutes, but first, Chris, I want to ask you about your ex experience, given what, what Greg has said about the, the uh, commission route. Uh, thinking back on the last six years now, five, six, seven years now, uh, what's the experience been like and, and what, what have you taken away from it thus far? I, I I feel like that's a big question and I feel like uh, I haven't grappled with it. Mm. Um, you know, so much of my um, life has been spent, um, you know, fighting challenges like this. Um, and so, you know, the last five or six years fighting this uh, <clears throat> uh, felt a lot like, you know, my high school days. Uh, but I feel like, um, you know, I have a lot more support and people that I can, um, I can count on that, um, I, I perhaps didn't have when when I was, um, you know, in high school and and experiencing um, the the bullying and the um, you know the like there there were so many things then. But um, if if there's anything that I take away from this is that. Um, you know, there is a way for us to uh, challenge it, challenge policies like this. Um, I do think the current model that exists is um, not perfect. And I think that um, there are per perhaps some changes that need to be made to allow uh, complainants to... Um, have a resolution within uh, a speedier process. Uh, um, and I, I don't think that we should have to go through a gateway um, uh, such as the, the Canadian Human Rights Commission in this case. And uh, I know that there was, um, you know, some delay with that uh, process. Um, and so... You know, I, I think that we need to perhaps look closer at 
these bodies and see what we can do to make them more accessible. They are accessible compared to the court system, but um, let's be honest, the court system is not accessible to, to uh, many, and uh, it, it is um, often um, to the benefit of the few. So <clears throat> I, I would just say that um, there, there's still a lot of work to be done in that area, but, but of course there's also a lot more to be done um, on um, the human rights front. Um, and so uh, I hope to see more progress um, in tandem and that, um, you know, folks can um, have access to these processes uh, should they wish to uh, challenge uh, the police or, um, uh, you know, whatever various uh, body it is. Um, and so um, I'm just grateful that, you know, I've been able to be a part of this and um, it hasn't been an easy, um, you know, road to um, uh, to take, but um, I'm also not um, unfamiliar with it uh, since my, my high school um, experiences. One of the things I often say is that whenever you see a rights victory or a rights struggle or, or a change in the agenda, a change in what we're talking about, it sometimes seems to come from nowhere. If you're looking at the, if, uh, I'm speaking of the public perception, it just seems all of a sudden these things are on the agenda or they've changed. But in reality, what's happened is that a lot of people have struggled, have fought, have done the organizational work, have built communities, have, have been courageous, uh, such that this change has come about. I mean, it doesn't, it, it seems to come from nowhere to some people. That's because they're missing all of the work that's happening on the ground. And it takes the form of, of, of struggles like this, of courage, like yours to come forward and to and to put yourself on the line, your time on the line, your labor on the line, emotional and otherwise, to do the work. And so uh, I, well, first of all, I recognize it, and I'm certainly uh, thankful for it. I, and I, I'm sure so many others are too. So I want to take a quick second to recognize that because it's it's powerful. And I also want to now take a bit of a larger view about the state of, of uh, 2SLGBTQ plus rights in Canada. And I'll go to you, Greg. Looking back on the last several decades and, and thinking about the rights uh, struggles that have happened, I mean, where would you say we are now? And, and and where do you think we might be headed? So I think it's quite surprising. I think in my lifetime, now I'm in my mid-30s, in my lifetime, and likely everybody uh, around this round table, um, there are a lot of rights that were not taken yeah, we, it's hard to take for granted, that we couldn't take for granted, uh, even you know, 15, 16 years ago. The idea of marriage equality is, is frankly, historically such a novel uh, advancement um, in, in gay rights um, that it's hard to fathom the, the rapid change with which um, there have been advancements and changes to um, how the law has recognized um, uh, different members of the LGBTQ community. Um, I think there, there was, um, there's this concern of focusing too much also on marriage equality as being the culmination of, of, of gay rights or queer rights, because I think 
what we've seen in the last more, the more recent history is talking about more vulnerable members of, of the queer community. And I think what we um, have now focused on is talking about intersectionality in a, in a wider sense, which I think is important, right? So how queer identities um, uh, graft onto uh, indigenous identity, um, uh, you know, racialized identities, um, how it you know intersects with um, class and poverty. Uh, these are, I think, really key important issues. Uh, and, and so I think it's important when we look at the legislative landscape is that we have seen a very rapid change in the recognition of gay rights in a very kind of specific sense of, of the word um, around institutionalizing and recognizing um, uh, you know, uh, queer uh, love in a very formalized sense. Um, but I think what, what, what's occurred in the last more, more, in the more recent history is realizing how, you know, gay liberation or queer liberation, however you want to call it, intersects with a wider set of um, uh, identities, which are, you know, vulnerable um, and marginalized. Uh, there obviously are continuing polemics even within our community about, you know, certain a variety of issues, right? The the place of the police in, in, in pride parades uh, or pride festivals. Um, the I think the frontier of, of developing rights going forward, uh, I think are going to be uh, perhaps um, uh, a pushback on what's happening in the United States, potentially around the, how trans identities have become part of the culture wars. I think mercifully in Canada, we've been exempted from that, but that certainly seems to be a critical part of um, the rights um, agenda is focusing on and centering trans folks. Um, and also, as I said, recognizing those intersecting identities around indigeneity, um, uh, race, as well as uh, class. And, and that's kind of a continuing discussion that we have yet to fully, uh, fully resolve and figure around. And Chris, I want to ask you the same question. I want to think a little bit about, you mentioned that your your current uh, struggle and your current work parallels to some degree what you experienced in high school and growing up. And I wonder what you've seen by way of changes since, for instance, your high school days. I mean, and, and does that speak to any broader changes in the, in the cultural and, and rights struggle uh, for the community more broadly in Canada? You know, it's funny that you asked me that because I was uh, just asked this yesterday uh, by the Toronto Star. And um, it, it's interesting because we're, we're now seeing Catholic schools and uh, public boards prepared to fly the, uh, the pride flag at their schools. And uh, I was telling them that when I was a student, that was unimaginable that to have a pride flag at my school would have been um, a feat to, you know, try to um, uh, try to have it at, at my school. And, and in fact, I said that if I had raised that, then I think I would have been laughed out of the room. Uh, so, I'm, I'm glad to see that, you know, things are um, perhaps moving along, but I'm also, um, you know, thinking about the students who are 
um, still not feeling welcome and, and, and accepted in their schools and, and who simply want to learn, but don't feel safe to do so. And I think that, um, you know, this is perhaps another attempt at symbolism and, um, um, you know, feel good, um, um, appeals, but is not something that is going to, um, affect change. And so I still, um, you know, waiting to see what these school boards will do to, uh, affect that change and to ensure that students feel safer in their schools and that they have the spaces uh, that they need to learn and um, that when you know another student tries to put up a Harvey Milk poster it's not simply torn down and I, I also told them about you know how I wanted at the time an inclusive washroom and an accessible washroom uh, for students to use and that the school board wouldn't allow this and the school wouldn't allow this because I wasn't trans. That uh, simply for the fact that I was not um, a, a part of this community, that um, they wouldn't um, uh, abide by that request and, and, and put one in. Um, although I was, you know, trying to be an ally. I was trying to speak as an ally and try to um, have this um, put in so that uh, students would have um, a safer place to use the washroom. And, and this was, you know, fraught with challenge and um, I couldn't understand why. Uh, I still don't. Um, and, and, you know, with respect to my own school board, I know that, uh, they've put up or will be putting up, uh, pride flags, but this is also the same school board who has changed its name and is trying to improve its image and, uh, more recently, uh, threatened a lawsuit against me. Um, and so, you know, <laughs> you have to ask yourself, uh, what um, what meaningful actions are they taking and how much have things changed? It, it, does, the, does the board have any schools with gay-straight alliances? Do you know? So after I left, um, it, it appears there has been one uh, um, at, at my own school, um, but they're also... Uh, after I did some searches online, there also appears to be one at um, my um, the the first school that I went to uh, that was back in um, Cambridge uh, in in uh, um, you know my early days of schooling. So again, I I think that um, this is only. Um, you know, the least that we can expect from them and that there is so much more that they need to do. And uh, I also talked about, you know, how I thought it was appalling to see, uh, you know, members of the church, um, you know, be so vocal and so so much in opposition. 
and that this was not Catholic um, teaching. This was not Catholic uh, values, and that it's unacceptable for them to, um, you know, speak so loudly in opposition to this. Especially that all we're talking about is putting up some pride flags. Uh, there's still crosses at these schools, and uh, more recently, we learned about uh, more than 200 children who were taken, who, who were killed um, in residential schools. And uh, the church has a, an instrumental role in that. Uh, they played an instrumental role in that. And, and so did our government. And I think that, um, you know, it's long past due for us to get rid of the Catholic school system in, um, in Canada. You've, you've anticipated a future episode, I think. I think that's, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, a, I'm a product of the, of the separate system in Ontario. I went to a Catholic school and uh, it's something I've thought about a lot because I, I agree with you. I, I was lucky because my school was quite good and it made a big difference in my life, but also it probably should never have existed as a separate school system. Um, but uh, yes, so I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because that is that is going to have to be a future episode. I'm making a mental note. Uh, Greg, I, I want to pick up on a point that Chris raised about uh, trans folks and, and look at the broader question of, of allyship within the community. And what, what does allyship look like when it comes to uh, uh, different communities within the broader community and thinking specifically of say trans non-binary and, and, and two spirit folks. So what you mentioned intersectionality, uh, what does that allyship look like across communities in, in sort of the contemporary rights environment? For sure. Uh, taking the long view of, of, of gay liberation and, and gay rights more broadly, um, I think a lot, and I think there's probably experts out there can speak to this more definitively than I can, but uh, when people sit back and remark about how quickly this rights revolution within the queer community occurred in terms of broader social acceptance, a big part of it is the fact that um, many families across different classes, across different races, have queer people among themselves. And um, it seems like a big part of um, the LGBT rights movement has been built off of individual conversations that folks have had with their family. The individual acts of coming out um, have had this cumulative and aggregate effect of changing minds so quickly within a single generation. Um, but as I alluded to earlier, I think the gay rights movement has had a particular agenda um, that has give, been given a lot more prominence, certainly at the beginning of the 2000s, around the centrality of um, social acceptability through marriage, recognition of pension and benefit rights, um, a lot of kind of conventional, what we now can <laughs> very, um, um, uh, perhaps we can take it for granted to some degree to talk about this idea of, of conventional gay rights. Um, but, but I think that's something to keep in mind is the queer community is quite diverse um, and um, a big part of allyship is recognizing that the um, uh, LGBT rights agenda has largely been driven by 
uh, primarily uh, white folks, uh, middle to high income earners, um, looking for social acceptance and, 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 and recognition through um, institutions and through the laws. V very important steps um, to have taken. But what allyship I think involves is recognizing the queer community is very diverse, very broad in terms of income levels, in terms of race, and sharing um, that privilege and power. Um, it, it means that folks who have been you know, leading the charge in, 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 the, in the rights movement historically, um, uh, in order to, to, to display allyship, I think what that means is um, sharing, spreading, and using that social and political capital has, that has developed over the last several decades. What that means, I think, is, uh, as I alluded to earlier, I think it means, um, and I say this as a cis individual, uh, but it, it means, I think, centering trans voices. I think it means centering um, racialized queer voices. Uh, and, and the importance of that is that's, that it's recognizing where the vulnerabilities are within our community and, and, and sharing those social and political resources um, in a way that, that makes sense. And what that means practically, I think, is um, for folks who are perhaps primarily um, yeah, white, uh, middle to upper income earners, um, sharing those social and political resources by emphasizing what is important to, to the community in a broad sense, whether it's ensuring safe schools, uh, whether it's ensuring access to healthcare, um, in terms of you know, gender affirming surgeries, access to um, resources to queer youth. Uh, I think we know that disproportionately queer youth are um, more likely and more at risk of both mental health challenges and homelessness. Um, I, I think there, there's very much those same vulnerabilities within the trans communities, given the fact that um, where we are in terms of the arc of history on that on that issue, so I think it is really lending that political and social capital and prioritizing um, the more vulnerable voices in the community and those priorities, um, given how strongly the more conventional rights uh, agenda has been pursued and to 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 great degree of success already. Chris, you're on you're on the front lines of the of the rights struggle. Uh, you know, I mean, I, I know it's it's so easy for people to theorize. And I often think about this as a writer. My job is to write and I write, but it's it's from a distance. It's an air campaign. And it it sometimes feels removed uh, from from those who are doing the 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 labor of organizing and advocating on the ground. And I'm reflecting on that. I'm curious from your perspective as a as a uh, sort of frontline rights. Um, uh, I want to think of the right word. The first word that came to mind was was warrior because whenever I think of struggles, that's what comes. But this is what we have these these martial terms sort of embed themselves into our into our discourse. But you know, I'm curious from your perspective on the front lines where you see this with the right struggle going in the next five or 10 or even, or even 20 years. Thank you for that. Um, I, I think that, um, you know, for our community, for, for LGBTQ2S plus 
um, folks. Blood is only, you know, one small uh, issue uh, among many that we still need to fight. And um, you're seeing currently just how difficult it is for us to affect this change. And so I think a lot of us feel that uh, we're a long way away from real change, from what um, from what a lot of us need and are, are hoping to see within the next 5, 10, 20 years. I am hopeful because we are seeing things changed, uh, change rapidly. Uh, but I think at the same time, we're living at a time where we're being met with greater challenges, like the climate crisis that we're currently in. And um, I think also, um, you know, we're being priced out of housing. It's becoming impossible for us to um, to access housing. And um, I, I don't think uh, this is well understood. And I, I think also we're dealing with precarious work. Uh, a lot of folks are uh, precariously employed. Um, and they're doing, you know, three, four, I don't know how many jobs. And they're still, you know, paycheck to paycheck, uh, trying to pay the bare minimum. We don't have a comprehensive healthcare system. We, we like to tout that we do, but we don't. Um, and so there are still gaps. Um, and, and people who... Um, are uh, perhaps more privileged, um, are benefiting a lot more from, you know, the systems that we have, um, but the most vulnerable, the most marginalized among us are not. And uh, they're also the ones who are paying the greatest share of taxes. They're the ones who um, are um, um, being met with the greatest um, challenge. And... Um, I'm also glad to see that, you know, conversations are perhaps um, getting more prominence. Uh, we're now talking a lot more, I think, um, about um, police violence and police brutality and how this is um, um, something that has yet to change and that it needs to um, um, it needs to um, not only stop, but that uh, these institutions, these bodies, these um, 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 arms of state need to be abolished and need to be defunded. And uh, that um, we're still not seeing that, right? Uh, so, um, 
And I'm thinking also of, um, you know, with the climate crisis, uh, environmental racism, um, th there are so many, so many issues that we're facing. Um, and we face these at an intersection of various identities, as Greg was saying, you know, uh, we're talking a lot more now about intersectionality, but um, I don't think we're uh, talking enough about, um, you know, how people are affected uh, through these various identities and um, what um, experiences they're having and uh, what issues uh, are still um, um, needing challenge. And, you know, even with uh, blood, I think... Um, there, there isn't a lot of understanding as to what other um, challenges exist, uh, what other issues exist. Um, there's not a list anywhere, you know, it's not like you can just look at the list and, and say, okay, I'm going to put, you know, my efforts towards that. Um, often it happens when um, you try to do something and um, you're told no. <laughs> And, um, you know, I still know of other issues that, that exist. Like we're, we're seeing, um, you know, uh, the continued criminalization of HIV. Uh, this has yet to, uh, you know, stop here in, in Canada. And, um, and so, um, you know, we, we have to get beyond stigma. We need to uh, be better informed. We need to have um more tools at our disposal and I'm, I'm glad to see that you know we're now um we, we now have um home test kits uh that people can can use but people have been advocating for this for years and we're only now seeing um you know efforts to 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 make this happen now and so you know I, I just, I feel like there's so much that still needs to be done and uh, very little will uh, from politicians and from government to affect that change. Yeah, I mean, even watching recently the, the debate in the House of Commons on banning conversion therapy, I mean, to me, it seems like, you know, if we were as, as advanced on uh, uh, to SLGBTQ plus rights in this country as it were, there wouldn't be a single dissenting voice in the House of Commons in banning conversion therapy because because there would just be so unbelievably inappropriate to even think about it, you wouldn't voice it. Uh, and yet even that struggle, which seems plainly uh, the, the, the direction of which seems so plainly morally correct in one direction, not the other, is, is still a struggle. And, and so I think I think we often pat ourselves on the back more than I'm talking about the broader country uh, than, than we ought to. We're approaching time, Greg. So I want to close out with, with you. It's pride month. And I was thinking yesterday about the, the degree to which the discourse has shifted in the country, but also the degree to which uh, corporations, uh, you know, unions, professional associations, so on and so forth have, have adopted pride as, as a cause and and support it and that strikes me as in some ways 
uh, extraordinarily useful in other ways, perhaps problematic. I'm wondering, as a, as a human rights lawyer, looking at the landscape of, of how uh, the broader society has integrated the rights struggle, uh, whether you think we've reached a point at which um, the broader social acceptance has made it easier for these rights struggles, or whether or not there's been some co-opting that have, has, has uh, uh, perhaps created some new problems. I think what's interesting about what's what's occurred in the last 15 plus years is, as you say, the landscape and the marketing PR communications landscape has changed dramatically. I remember being in my undergrad days, this early 2000s, and when an ad came out featuring you know queer folks or queer support from a mainstream large organization, it was heralded as something quite novel and interesting um, to be able to see oneself reflected in an ad. Um, I think the running joke among in the queer community right now is um, that June month, Pride month, is also t- uh, associated with, you know, um, being bombarded with rainbow stickers and rainbow posters and every <laughs> corporation under the sun draping themselves in, 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 the, in the rainbow flag. Um, it's become almost a, a bit of an inside joke, I think, within the queer community, how obnoxious it almost seems. <laughs> um, particularly because from a historical perspective, these uh, especially much more conventional established organizations have were not early adopters necessarily. But it, it is heartening. I think we got we, we to give um, credit to the broader rights movement in, in shifting the debate where this, you know, it, it is almost seen as... Um, uh, it, it seems strategically smart to, to be associate yourself with pride. That being said, I think the major criticism coming from this is a lot of these organizations, more, you know, I'm thinking of large banks, telecom companies, um, law firms. Um, the question is, uh, you know, visibly identifying yourself with pride is important. Okay. But then what sort of deeds and actions are you doing to advance true substantive equality? And that's something that's kind of missing from the, the uh, for, from, from this whole discourse is understanding how these organizations are hiring, promoting, advancing queer individuals through their organization, how they are supporting um, the broader rights movement around um, the overcriminalization of queer folks and trans folks. Uh, and what, where do they stand on, for instance, the, the most recent report on um, uh, the you know, missing persons investigation by Gloria Epstein, documenting how primarily racialized and queer folks were just forgotten and undervalued by the police uh, in this whole, uh, this all spurned by uh, Bruce MacArthur and, and, and the gruesome um, serial killings that emerged. But, you know, where do you stand on these really important key issues? And where do you, where are you putting your efforts? Um, it's one thing taking out an ad, that's another thing kind of dealing substantively with both workplace issues uh, and broader social issues in terms of what is important for the lived experience of queer folks on the ground. And, and, and my hope is that this whole corporate social responsibility agenda adopts a more substantive view instead of just a superficial adoption of, of the pride colors. And, and that's where we need to see s- some greater movement. I think part of this emerged, I think, from the Black Lives Matter movement in the United States. And you saw actually uh, organizations have to internally grapple with their own 
issues of anti-Black racism, about how they hire, advance, promote folks within their own companies. Um, and I think that's the sort of next evolution in, uh, if you want to call it more broadly, corporate social responsibility, internalizing those lessons and understanding uh, what substantive actions um, these organizations can take to, you know, uh, to back up their, um, their uh, reported solidarity with actual actions that, that, that show that commitment. Well, that brings us to time. As always, the conversation has, has flown by and we've covered a bunch. And uh, so let me offer my first thanks to, to you, Chris, and to you, Greg, for joining me here today and, and also for your work. Thank you. Thank you, Dave. Uh, thank you for giving us uh, an opportunity to talk about these issues. And uh, I'll be following the, the case closely, and, and I, I certainly look forward to supporting supporting you however I can. Uh, so my thanks to both of you, and as always, my thanks to Mira Ahmad and Aaron Reynolds, who make this show not just possible, but so much better than it would otherwise be. And of course, always to all of our listeners, wherever you may be, I encourage you to check out this case, to follow it closely, and to, uh, to write your MP, uh, to write your... Uh, MPP to write your MLA to write your local city council and remind them of their moral legal duties and obligations to this and these communities my thanks as always to everyone who involved in making this possible and we'll see you again here in a couple of weeks hey I'm Jody Butts host of at risk a podcast show on the 2020 network that seeks to help us better protect the things we care most about during these dynamic and challenging times. At Risk is about better understanding the role of risk in our everyday lives and how best to manage it. I speak with interesting Canadians like astronaut Colonel Chris Hadfield, Olympian Haley Wickenheiser, entrepreneur Tarek Haddad, and Canada's 18th Prime Minister, the Right Honourable Brian Mulroney. Do you really care about something if you're not thinking about how you could lose it? You can find At Risk on your favorite podcast app or on the 2020 Network. Thanks for listening.